I am very pleased to introduce today's guest. Knowledge, as they say, is power, and in that regard, Rob McIsaac is a powerhouse. He is the president of Mohawk College and the chair of the Council of Presidents of Colleges Ontario. He is a man on a mission, so to speak, to unleash the potential of Ontario's colleges. It is estimated that 75% of future jobs in Ontario will require post-secondary education. And Ontario's 24 public colleges stand ready to help educate the workforce of tomorrow. Mr. McIsaac and the, colleges he lead, he, the college he leads are also there to pave the way. Under his leadership, Mohawk College has launched the largest campus renewal program in its history. Mohawk has, Mohawk has also initiated its first environmental plan across all of Ontario's colleges, the first. Uh, it's also a leader in applied research and health in health and technology. It's also developing new partnerships, including one to co-locate programs with Sheridan College, a, an initiative that's a first of its kind. Mr. McIsaac is no stranger to big jobs, I think as we all know. In his pre-Mohawk life, uh, he was the first chair of Metrolinx, the Greater Toronto and Hamilton Area Transportation Authority. Prior to Metrolinx, he served as the mayor of Burlington for nine years, and during this term, he established a reputation for his commitment to regional growth and to economic development. He has an undergraduate degree from the University of Waterloo and a law degree from Western University. He also holds an honorary doctorate from Australia's Charles Sturt University for his outstanding community service. And of course, as you'll all shortly see, he is a very active member of the Movember movement. <laughs> Uh, this afternoon, he will outline the leadership role that Ontario colleges must play in shaping highly successful 21st century workforce in this province and in this country. Mr. McIsaac, it's a pleasure to have you, and the podium is yours. Thank you very much, Allison, for that kind introduction. Uh, so what an honour it is to be here this afternoon. It always feels kind of extraordinary when a guy from Hamilton is allowed to speak in Toronto. Um, in this instance, though, I think there's a pretty cool connection, uh, given that Hamilton is actually the birth, uh, birthplace of the Canadian club. The Canadian club movement actually began in Hamilton at a public meeting way back in February of 19, or 1893. Uh, and I have a, actually have a... The, the resolution from that meeting. At that meeting, Hamilton, Hamiltonian Charles McCullough read the following initiating resolution for the Hamilton Club. It is, in the opinion of this meeting, a fit and proper time to take definite steps, however humble, to deepen and widen the regard of Canadians for their land of birth or adoption, and to increase their interest in matters affecting the welfare of their country. Be it therefore resolved that this meeting proceed to the organization of a society to be known as the Canadian Club, having for its objects the encouragement of the study of history, literature, and resources of Canada, the recognition of native talent, and the fostering of a patriotic Canadian sentiment. What a neat piece of history and what a neat connection between uh, Hamilton and Toronto. Now, uh, my political training compels me to recognize the people who are here today who are vital to my success going forward. Um, I'm, I'm joined today by three members of Mohawk's uh, Board of Governors, as well as my senior, most of my senior leadership team is here. The leader of our Students Association, Andy Hall, is here, 
Andy uh, has a few members of his board. It's really Andy's fault that I'm looking uh, like such a rebel here this morning. He challenged me to do this, uh, well, uh, I guess just before uh, the start of November. So we're both uh, participants in this November, and it's it's actually been pretty fun. It's, it's funny, you know, you run into people and they sort of say, well, that's kind of a new look for you. Uh, and then you sort of say, oh, it's, it's November, it'll be gone soon. And then as soon as somebody says even the most... Uh, slightly negative thing about your mustache, this sort of torrent opens up and everybody in the room starts to insult you. So um, <clears throat> please feel free that the door has been opened. I also want to note how, how honored I am that uh, Deborah Newman, Deputy Minister of Training Colleges and Universities, is here this afternoon. Thanks, Deputy, for being here. At the risk of uh, pointing out that we have stacked the audience, I want to uh, recognize my college president colleagues who have joined me, David Agnew, who you've already met from Seneca, uh, Mary Lynn Westmoines from Georgian is here, and she's my predecessor actually at Mohawk, Jeff Zabudski uh, from Sheridan, Ann Sato from George Brown, Fred Gibbons from Northern, Judy Morris from Lambton. Thank you to all my colleagues for being here and showing your support. Uh, I wanted to also make a special mention uh, of your very own Marianne Chambers, who is a Canadian club director and also former TCU minister, uh, and who was so good to our sector during her time uh, as minister. Marianne, thank you for all of your contributions. I noticed uh, one of your guest speakers last week was Mark Cohan, commissioner of the uh, Canadian Football League. I think uh, perhaps most regrettably, the Hamilton Tiger Cats won't be playing in Sunday's Grey Cup. <clears throat> but I do want to mention that Mohawk College grad Kate McKenna will be at the Rogers Center uh, hard at work. She's a graduate of our public relations program and an employee of the CFL. She works as the league's social media expert, online host, uh, and content producer. She boarded the CFL train back in September and traveled coast to coast uh, meeting CFL fans. Before joining the CFL, she traveled the world as a videographer and professional vacationer for Transat Holidays. So I'm actually thinking of proposing a job sharing arrangement with Kate. <laughs> On Monday night, uh, she is going to be back in Toronto uh, at the Premier's Awards. As a really, uh, that's a really first class event run by Linda Franklin uh, and her team at Colleges Ontario. Those awards recognize the achievements and contributions of outstanding college graduates here in Ontario. You know, it's nominees like Kate who help underscore the importance of our colleges. When Linda Franklin and my fellow presidents talk about the enormous contribution of colleges to the prosperity of Ontario, I think we most frequently talk about what our graduates have done. So this afternoon, I want to talk to you about how we can maximize the contribution of colleges in terms of what they can contribute to a strong and prosperous Ontario. But more than that, I have some ideas about why all of our post-secondary institutions here in the province have to aggressively embark on, on an agenda of transformation. You know, it's an interesting and turbulent time for those of us working in higher ed. There is a lot of heat and light surrounding our sector. Uh, no doubt many of you read the Our Time to Lead series in the Globe and Mail. Uh, the series kicked off a national conversation and debate about the role of colleges and universities. 
Charles Pascal joined in the Globe's discussion uh, with an op-ed. Charles argues that there's really no system of post-secondary education in Ontario. He called it the ad hocness monster of post-secondary education in Canada. People are asking a lot of questions about the value of a post-secondary credential, the ability of our graduates to get a job, and the responsiveness of post-secondary to labour market needs. People are concerned about rising costs, the quality and sustainability of post-secondary institutions. And I have to say, they're all really good questions. <clears throat> Excuse me. Most of us in higher ed spent most of last summer thinking about those questions while working on policy reform proposals at the call of the province. Colleges Ontario created a very substantial proposal containing a new vision for colleges here in Ontario. But every college and university in the province submitted a proposal to the government reflecting its key strategic priorities. The subsequent announcement by the Premier that he would be stepping down certainly had a lot of us wondering about whether that work was all for naught. But I would argue that regardless of who becomes the next Premier of Ontario and regardless of which party is in power, the need remains to rethink, reinvent and reboot post-secondary education in Ontario. Because the forces that led the province to begin thinking about reform remain very much in play. They are forces that transcend political parties and even national boundaries. As provincial coffers empty out issues like increased productivity, value for money, transparency, accountability, and effectiveness are going to continue to be raised, especially in the context of a slow growth economy. But beyond uh, those relatively local pressures to change, the world around us in higher education is changing fundamentally. And we would be naive to think that we are immune to what is happening in the world around us. The emergence of new players, public and private, will increasingly drive changes to our model of service delivery and our thinking about how people learn best. Online university offerings like Coursera, which offers courses free of charge online from some of the best professors in the world, is a textbook case in early stage disruptive innovation. Students from around the world <clears throat> in the remotest of locations can now access Ivy League University courses at no charge. If you are a professor of, uh, a, a student rather, a professor Clay Christensen's at Harvard School of Business, you'll know how this story ends. These early offerings, currently aimed at markets that no one else is interested in, will ultimately change the game for everybody. So those of us fortunate enough to work in higher education are going to have to change if Ontario is to keep pace with the world around us, not to mention satisfying the demands of provincial treasurers. And I think ultimately that change has to happen both at an institutional level in terms of our delivery platform and as a sector in terms of the way we all work together. Now, as chair of the Committee of Presidents at Colleges Ontario, I can tell you that Ontario's colleges are well positioned to respond to many of the challenges that we are facing. <clears throat> we have been effective uh, and responsible stewards of our resources, our collective agreements, 
uh, have recognized provincial fiscal challenges. Our pensions uh, are, are uh, in good shape because our contribution rates have been appropriate. Our tuitions are amongst the lowest in the country. We are agile and unabashedly oriented to labor market needs. Our program advisory committees and our governance structures ensure that our curricula meet the fast-changing needs of the workplace. But looking ahead, all of us, including Ontario's colleges, need to do better for Ontario to prosper. That's because the fact is, more than ever, our economy depends on highly skilled workers. As Allison said, the vast majority of jobs which are going to be created in Ontario, more than seven in 10 in the coming years, will require some kind of post-secondary credential. Gone are the days when you could drop out of high school and take a job at a steel company or a, an auto manufacturer and be set for life. And looking at Mohawk's community of Hamilton, we know that about 40% of the adults in our community do not have any college or university credential. And there are lots of neighborhoods where the percentage is a lot higher than that. These populations are wholly unprepared for the economic change that is happening in Ontario. And that challenge uh, is, of course, compounded by our demographics. At the same time that the skills needed by people in this economy vault upwards, the baby boomers are starting to leave the workforce in record numbers. And our birth rate trends mean that the people are simply not in place uh, to replace them. Nearly every major employer that I speak to is concerned about where their employees are going to come from in the next five to 10 years. There just aren't enough people in the pipeline to fill the void that is being left behind. So we're headed for this perverse situation, which uh, was forcefully identified by my colleague, Rick Miner, where we won't have enough people to fill the jobs being vacated at the same time as we have large groups of people who are unqualified uh, to participate in the economy. Jobs without people and people without jobs. So what's going on here? How can we have so many people who are so unprepared? We live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, so it isn't for lack of money. Nor do I think it's because all of these citizens are not clever enough to achieve a post-secondary credential. What are we doing wrong? Look, I've heard lots of blame uh, being assigned. Post-secondary institutions blame secondary schools. Secondary schools blame primary schools. Primary schools blame parents. And of course, I think we can all agree that we should all be blaming the province. Um, <clears throat> sorry, deputy. But those of us working in post-secondary education need to take some ownership here. What changes have we made in how we do business to help these unprepared populations? Now, there's little doubt that in the post-secondary sector, colleges have owned the access agenda. We have reached out, like no one else, to disengage and disenfranchise communities, offering a hand up. Still, it's remarkable to me, as a relative newcomer to education, how little things have changed. College and university classrooms today really aren't that much different from classrooms 200 years ago. And in many ways, our fundamental processes haven't changed either. In point of fact, our students are still learning from a delivery model built on centuries-old principles of mass production. By and large, we continue to deliver education 
using mass standardization and a batch model of processing. We bring in batches of students and subject them all to pretty much the same process. They listen to one-size-fits-all lectures and read the same course materials, and they do it all pretty much on the same timeline uh, in four-month stints. Those people who don't learn at that prescribed rate or who, for whatever reason, can't fit into this traditional framework of learning tend to get left behind or, worse still, left out altogether. Furthermore, as a sector, the kind of modularity we see in private sector products is often actively resisted when it comes to the interplay between post-secondary institutions. You know, it's remarkable to me that my BlackBerry can talk to my car. I can drive many pieces of hardware from my laptop. I can even access iTunes from my PC. Now, if Apple and Microsoft can find a way to work together, you would think colleges and universities could do at least as much. But when a student tries to mix and match courses between colleges and universities or between institutions within a sector, big problems frequently arise. I was recently talking to one of our students who is looking at attending university after graduating from Mohawk. He is dealing with two Ontario universities to see how much time he will be given for his, how much credit he'll be given for his time spent with us. One university will give him one year's credit for his three years at Mohawk. The other university will give him credit for just two subjects. Now, this is very frustrating to me, not just as a college president, but as a citizen and as a taxpayer because it seems to me that there ought to be some rhyme or reason for how this young man is being treated by two public institutions, but there is not. Now, the ultimate insult is that I am quite confident he would be treated much better if he left Ontario and went somewhere else in Canada or somewhere else in the world. I know the system can do better for this student, in part because of what our college has achieved together with our partners at McMaster University. Uh, together, we've forged one of the strongest college and university collaborations in Ontario, a collaboration that's given thousands of our students the best of both a college and a university education. Together, we've launched collaborative programs in health and technology. This fall, our partnership extended to the social sciences. McMaster students can now take Mohawk courses as electives and they graduate with a McMaster degree and a Mohawk certificate. Students deserve more of these kinds of partnerships, but these bilateral arrangements are not enough. We need to move to a student-centered model and a real system. So where to begin? Well, at the end of the day, there will be no substitute for the province developing a framework and a strategy for post-secondary education. The framework needs to focus on centers of excellence and student mobility. The strategy has to ensure that the province's economic development goals are being supported. It must include very deliberate measures aimed at increasing the number of young people entering the skilled trades. It should take dead aim at the very serious productivity challenge facing this province. Insofar as institutions are concerned, each of us needs to aggressively embrace new learning technologies that are about to disrupt education. Let me give you an example. Salman Khan is the founder of the Khan Academy, an online learning website that offers tutorials 
in a vast array of subjects for free. He's obviously a gifted teacher. You should check it out online if you haven't already. It's a huge deal. He started this endeavor literally by accident as he tutored his cousins in math. For convenience sake, Khan began posting his cousins' uh, tutorials on YouTube so that they could access him over the internet. And two revelations came out of this practice for him. The first was that his young cousins told him that they preferred watching him on YouTube than to actually meeting with him in person. <laughs> so why did they say that? Well, because from a student's perspective, they could turn him on uh, or turn him off whenever they wanted, uh, because they could make him repeat things uh, without the embarrassment of saying, I didn't get that. Can you please say it again? Because they didn't feel the pressure that any of us feels when someone is standing right in front of us and saying, do you get that? Do you get it? Do you understand it? The other interesting thing was that other people started watching his tutorials, uninvited, and they began giving him amazing feedback, so much so that he left his full-time job as a hedge fund analyst to set up the Khan Academy. The potential here is really to completely turn education on its head. What is currently and traditionally done in class can now be done at home. And that frees up the classroom for a whole new kind of relationship between teacher and student. I have to tell you, uh, <clears throat> as a college that's aggressively trying to uh, implement this new model, this sort of change is not without challenge. That is especially so for those instructors or professors who believe their lecture styles are so exciting, so captivating, so perfectly pitched that their students couldn't do without them being delivered live and in person. And the notion of a provincial framework and strategy is daunting because it implies a loss of autonomy as institutions commit to working together in transparent and accountable ways that put students first. Now, this isn't such a big deal for colleges, but universities are used to a kind of independence that sees this sort of interference as unacceptable. But for me, those challenges are all just so much inside baseball. If you're focused on students, what is most profoundly exciting about all of this is the potential to move towards a model of education that accommodates people who don't fit into today's system. That is so important because we can't any longer afford to leave so many people behind. We need every hand on deck given what's happening to our economy. But more significantly, surely we have a duty to open the door to post-secondary education for those who have traditionally seen it as irrevocably locked. I think one of the unpleasant truths of our system of higher education is that the, de the delivery model shuts out so many people or leads them to failure when they do make the heroic effort to attend. People from families which are under stress, fueled in large measure by low income, those, these are students who come to college or university, enroll in a full-time program while trying to hold down a full-time job at the same time. People lacking in personal supports, many of us take for granted because they are the first in their family ever to attend college or university. People who are unwilling to borrow the money from OSAP they need because they overestimate the burden of the loan and they underestimate the value of the credential. 
And the truth is that many who do not attend college or university are lacking in the skills required for success, fundamental skills like math and English. And I believe that many of these people have learning styles that don't adapt well to the style of teaching we are currently using in our schools. So we need a model of education that will allow people uh, to learn in a way that plays to their strengths uh, while better accommodating their individual learning styles and lifestyle needs. We need a system that is flexible in terms of where and when and how students learn. Beyond what we teach, we need to, or how we teach, rather, we need to rethink what we teach. We need to have a discussion around learning outcomes for Ontario graduates that ensures they are prepared uh, with skills for the 21st century. And we need a very deliberate strategy to get more young people interested in taking up a trade. And finally, we need to have a very deliberate route that allows our business community to harness the power of our post-secondary system to find innovation and productivity improvements for our economy. There are a lot of SMEs out there who uh, simply have no way of getting to the post-secondary world in terms of R&D. Uh, and I can tell you there are lots of other countries around the world who are facilitating their SMEs and whose productivity rates are, are outpacing ours considerably. Again, uh, I want to tell you, I think Ontario's colleges are well poised uh, to help our province meet these needs. Unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, some systemic and some cultural, our colleges are like a high-performance engine which we will not allow out of first gear. Colleges continue to be constrained by a highly paternal relationship with the province rooted in 50-year-old policy. And we also continue to struggle with the attitude held principally by parents that colleges are a second choice relative to universities. In its recent submission to the province on reforming post-secondary education, Colleges Ontario advocates for a more mature relationship between colleges and the province, a relationship that will allow colleges to begin fulfilling their true potential. We are suggesting that the sector have autonomy to approve our own credentials through the Ontario College Quality Assurance Service. We are looking for the ability to grant a wider range of credentials from certificates to diplomas to three-year degrees to honours degrees. Frankly, I can envision a day in the not-too-distant future when colleges could be offering graduate degrees. This is already happening in Canada. This is not revolutionary. The Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, the British Columbia Institute of Technology are offering a suite of programs starting from skilled trades and apprentices going through to master's degrees. In my view, this broader range of credentials will help to address some of the attitudinal barriers that colleges are now facing. It will also allow more appropriate recognition for the work that our students are doing. I'm not aware of any jurisdiction other than Ontario where a three-year post-secondary program results in anything less than a degree. Colleges Ontario also worked with several student advocacy groups to come up with a suite of recommendations around credit transfer, which begins to issue, uh, address some of those issues of modularity that I was referring to earlier. In my view, prime among those recommendations was the notion that there ought to be a transparent and rational process for determining credit transfer. <laughs> 
and Colleges Ontario continues to advocate for a strong role for colleges in applied research. For colleges, research is really about putting our students to work together with local SMEs to find better ways of doing things. We are very much in the productivity game when it comes to research because of our strong industry connections. <clears throat> now I have to take a little bit of time to brag about my own college. At Mohawk, we're proposing to lead in regionalization. We've put forward a request to become Ontario's first specialized institute for health and technology. Those are both key drivers for our local economy and long-standing strengths of our college. This new institute for health and technology would be the lead provider of health, technology, skilled trades, and apprenticeship training in the Western Golden Horseshoe. I think establishing centers of excellence would allow our institutions to invest more resources in our strongest, highest demand programs and create a system that's far more complementary and productive. Mohawk is also aggressively moving forward with technology in our classrooms. By the end of 2013, we want all of our programs delivered in a blended format, meaning a thoughtful combination between online and face-to-face -face learning. We want our students to be able to learn anytime, anywhere, and eventually in a way that uh, enables every individual student's learning needs. We are also actively engaged in developing a suite of institutional learning in incomes based on skills that we think uh, are going to be needed for success by our students in the 21st century. You know, I'm very proud uh, of what our colleges and universities do in this province. Relative to many internationally, we are in a highly productive and efficient sector. And there is world-class work happening in colleges and universities across this province. But I think my message to you today is that is not enough to justify the status quo. The game is fundamentally changing, and this province really needs to keep up. At Convocation, uh, I always remind our graduating students uh, of their obligation to stand up and make a difference, to step up and to lead, to find the courage and the conviction to chart their own path, to help create a better tomorrow. I think it's a message equally applicable to all of us. Given the forces that are at play, the opportunities that are currently at reach, we owe it to our students and their future employers and to the citizens of this province to practice what we teach. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Marianne Chambers, uh, and I'm happy to have been asked to thank our guest speaker today. In fact, Rob, you almost had me thinking I wish I could be Minister of Training Colleges and Universities <laughs> again to help you to do what you want to do. It, it, it is music to my ears, Rob, to hear you speak in such detail about the recognition of credits earned in post-secondary institutions in Ontario, uh, a, a, a struggle we have long been dealing with. <clears throat> and to hear your passion for a student-centered focus and for access. In addition to thanking Rob for his remarks and for his leadership at Mohawk College and at Colleges Ontario, it is also my pleasure, through you Rob, 
to thank Ontario's colleges uh, for all that they, you, do. Uh, all that you contribute to the province and, and the people of Ontario. As Minister of Training Colleges and Universities, I witnessed firsthand the innovativeness and responsiveness of Ontario's colleges in recognizing that Ontario would be so much stronger if internationally trained professionals were enabled to contribute their vast and valuable skills and experience to the workforce. The delivery of bridging programs by the colleges helps to make this possible. As Minister of Children and Youth Services, I turned to Ontario's colleges to develop and deliver programs in behavior analysis so that a greater number of children with autism can have access to the intensive behavior intervention therapy that they so desperately need in order to achieve their potential. And when also during my time as Minister of Children and Youth Services, legislation received passage for the first regulatory college for early childhood educators in Canada, I knew it would be Ontario's colleges that would be there to raise the bar so that our children can have the quality of early learning opportunities that will make them more successful as they grow and develop. So these are just a few examples of what Ontario colleges have meant to me and to this province, and I must say, former Premier, the Honourable Bill Davis, certainly had a brilliant sense of the possibilities 47 years ago when he created the college system in Ontario. So I thank you, Rob, for your leadership of the Committee of Presidents, and I thank every college in Ontario for all that they, that you have contributed and continue to tr uh, contribute uh, to making Ontario uh, strong and prosperous and an absolutely wonderful place to call home. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marianne, and thank you very, very much, Rob. Um, I probably speak for all of us when I say there was a tremendous amount of, of food for thought, I think, for all of us who care about education and care about this province in your remarks today. So thank you for being here. Um, also, thank you again to Colleges Ontario for supporting today's event. It was uh, extraordinary, fascinating, interesting. Thank you. Um, this concludes our formal part of the event and our television programming as well, uh, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. And I did want to also thank Rogers and 680 News for their continued coverage of Canadian Club events. Um, to learn more about the club and our events, please visit us at, online at canadianclub.org. Uh, and thank you all very, very much for being here. Uh, this meeting is now adjourned. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Thank you.